AI is most ready to replace labor leverage and technological leverage in knowledge-based industries. That's where it's going to disrupt the hardest, the fastest, in my opinion. Knowledge-based industries that are work from home, computer work, all that, it is going to disrupt those industries and places where today it's like, oh, it makes sense to hire someone. It will no longer make sense to hire someone. You'll just spin up AI to do it. And places where it makes sense to build software, why would it make sense to build software if eventually you can just tell AI what you want and it'll build the whole software for you in 10 minutes and it's done, it's ready to go. And even then you start looking at, will we even need all the tools we have if instead AI is is the interface layer. If all we do is interact with AI and it chooses how to structure the systems in the background, I don't even have to buy software anymore. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. So what does that mean uh, being, so let's say I'm not, I'm a very, you know, like vision driven. I do look at data and this and that, but you know, I'm not, I'm not very, you know, technology is not my, my, my strength. Like it's not, you know, I'm okay with it. I know how to use Google docs. I know how to, you know, do a few things, but what am I like, what, what, what should I do? Where should I start to kind of like understand technology, how it performs nowadays? Should I try to pay attention to AI specifically or understand, you know, uh, systems, data, like where, where should I go? Databases? Yeah, it's a good question. There's, there's no, no, it's not. So much. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a good question. So there's a couple of questions that are probably good centering questions on where you direct your efforts, because it's an infinite pool of things you could be learning about, right? There's a couple of, of key questions I think any leader really needs to be able to answer. One is, what are we doing that is not different from the marketplace? What things do we do that are commoditized? So for example, if I'm a consulting firm or if I'm an agency, there are certain things that I do that I don't do any better than anyone else. And most businesses, yeah. this is like 50% or more of what you do is like yeah. you have the customer because you went and found and sold the customer, not because you are dramatically better or different than competitors. So there's some portion of your business that is just, we need to be we are commoditized. We are more or less just operating like everyone else. And in that part of your business, what you have to be able to answer from a technology perspective is, can we compete on our unit costs? Can we, are we leveraging technology in such a way where we will not just lose on a cost basis? Because long-term, whether or not you're there yet, long-term, that market becomes a cost leader market where- exactly. Over time, there's just going to be downward pressure on prices because everyone can do it. It can be automated away. So if you're doing it by using some automation tool and you're upcharging it 200%, someone's going to come along and be happy to charge 150% for the same upcharge and use the same automation tool. In fact, your own employees might be willing to leave and do that exact thing and take your freaking customers. So it's like, yeah, we're seeing that in, in the design agency world. I mean, yeah. So that, so, so when I know what's been commoditized, then I need to understand how technology, which technology tools are playing into that. And I need to be at minimum on par with everyone else. And then there's a section of your business that drives your competitive advantages. And in the section of your business where you have competitive advantages, you need to know how technology relates to those competitive advantages. Now, it may be that technology is part of that competitive advantage. Maybe that technology could accelerate that competitive advantage. And it could be that technology in its future form, especially with AI, is going to come disrupt or remove that competitive advantage. And if you don't understand the relationship of your competitive position to technology, then you're at risk of getting beat or put out of business because yeah. 
it's going to do those things, especially with AI. This is where uh, I already see how most of our business can be replaced by AI. I don't know if that'll be four years. I don't know if that'll be 20 years, but I'm preparing us as if it's going to be two years out because I want to make sure that if that shift happens, we're at the forefront of it and we capitalize on it. We don't get innovated out of business. So I think those are the most important questions to start with. It's not that you need to be extremely talented on, on the technical side. Oh, sorry. The third, the third domain I didn't share is what tools do you use? You can't outsource, delegate the responsibility of what tools your business is going to use. So that's the last piece as a leader is when you're some leaders, in fact, common things I'll see in companies, they'll delegate it to some middle manager or some, some person and say, Hey, go figure out what the best CRM is for us or go, you know, procure this software. I don't believe in doing that in early stage companies. Look, when you're a huge firm, there's going to be delegation of some of this stuff, but for anyone that's say hundred employees or less, maybe even 200 employees or less, the executive team needs to know and understand what tools being used and why, because they have all of the vision of the things we just talked about, how technology relates to their, to the parts of their business that are getting commoditized, how technology relates to their competitive advantages. And they need to be able to weigh in on making sure that those are good choices of tools. But the other thing is they need to commit to use those tools as accountability for accountability, for keeping everyone in the same system. They need to exemplify. You can't have executives going out and starting their own little tools because you have the same problem of, well, my executive said I could use this tool. So if there's not a cohesive technology strategy of which tools you're going to use and why, and the, and the executive team is checked out on that process, then you're going to deal with a bunch of downstream pain as well. So I think those are the domains is how technology relates to the parts of your business that are commoditized, how it relates to your competitive advantage, and then what tools you're going to use and why. If the executive team knows those things, then I think they're probably doing a good job. And if you don't have the skills to do those things, that's where you hire a consultant or someone that is an expert to come in and weigh in and say, look, here's what we're seeing. And then you get bought in as an executive team to whatever that is. It doesn't cost a lot of money to do that. Like if some consultant is charging you tens and twenties of thousands of dollars to come in and just make some simple recommendations or give you feedback on what they're seeing in the market, that's dumb. So you should be able to, to get someone who can come in and speak to some of the things that they're saying, what's happening in other firms. And then that, that sets you up to, to make some of those decisions more responsibly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a million dollar advice right there, man. I'm sure you talk to a lot of companies that, that have huge wastes. I talk to CMO sometimes I talk to VPs and they're doing that switch of reducing the cost and, and planning for next year. And a lot of times they reevaluate tools that they use and things like that. And I mean, think about it. If you don't know the tools that you're using, if you don't, if you're not doing these three things, uh, you cannot move fast enough. And so that puts you in a position, disadvantage uh, position, because now your, your three month project can become a 12 month project. Cause now you have to go learn. You have to go do, hire, blah, 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 blah. And then the first person you hire might not be the right fit. So the second one, you're six months in, and now it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, or tens of thousands, whatever. You and you so, actually hit on one of the things that happens a ton yeah. that is super painful, which is when they after they delegate the responsibility to choose the tool to say a VP of marketing or whatever, then they fire that VP of marketing. They hire a new one, and they come in and go, "Why are we using this tool?" They restart the evaluation. <laughs> Everyone's blaming the tool instead of actually doing the core fundamentals of what's going to drive success, which is the business process, the execution. And tools, in many cases, are distractions. So I usually, with my clients and in our business, we advocate for tool continuity as hard as we can. So in order for something for us to move off of one of the tools we've used, we've only moved once or twice since we started this company in five years. Any tool that we use, we've only moved. I think of two examples and both times we waited out significantly. It had to be dramatically better 
or like business imperative for us to make a change because it's so time consuming. You have to retrain the people. It's costly. It's there's unintended consequences. There's limitations in the new tool you didn't see. So in your old tool, you can see these are the things we can't do. When you are evaluating a new tool, you believe it can do those things. You go into it and you find out, oh, we forgot to ask about some of the things that our old tool was doing well that this one doesn't do now. And now we have a whole new problem to deal with. And so if you know you're working with a tool that's either a market leader or is a well-respected tool, moving to another well-respected tool is such a massive waste of money the majority of time. And so we don't do that. We, we say, this is the strategy. If new people come in, they're working with the existing tools. We will teach you how to use the tools. Our process is built around these tools. And until there is a major ROI, a huge value proposition for us to change, we're sticking with those tools. Yeah, dude, that's, that's a great way to, uh, to approach it. I mean, yeah, especially nowadays with customers are just changing jobs, especially executives too, like VPs, directors, they're changing like a year and a half, two years, sometimes a year, nine months. And they come and they, you know, they, some, some of these roles, they own the budget, right? They're, 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 yep. they're given a budget. And so they make these software buying decisions. Again, they spend a bunch of time and now like, oh, we hire a new person. It's like, okay. So like now restart the process. Like, man, that, yeah, we, we, that's a huge waste. Okay. So I guess we can talk about hiring because I wanted to talk to you about that. So like, and this is not so much how to hire, like, I, I want to understand better, like uh, you you also expressed to me that you knew you wanted to have a business, and one of the one of the decisions that you made early on is you wanted to hire people that complemented you, but you did not want to give up a little bit of the control. You still wanted to make sure that the vision that you had was accomplished before you started to to give up a little bit of the of the control, right? Mm -hmm. So explain to me uh, the beginning of that of that process? Like, how did you really realize like, Hey, I cannot just hire skill. I need to hire somebody that's compatible with, uh, what I, what I need them to do and how I need them to, to do it. Yeah. I'm right now in our business. So we're now 60 some people globally. We, you know, we're, we're a decent sized little small business and now we are really focused on recruiting and hiring. <laughs> I probably wow. should have done better at that earlier. Um, and in some ways it's limited our growth and that's why we are focused on it now so much. And that's, so that's a skill I'm still building, but in as much as how, you know, some of the decisions I made really worked out well, and some of them held us back, which is natural for someone who's a first time leader of a business. And, you know, you're just, you're going to make a bunch of mistakes on the way. And that's part of the, part of the deal. So, but what, when I first started, what I wanted to do was I knew I needed to bring in really talented people that I could that I could train and that could operate in a very high functioning capacity. Like I, I was not trying to just hire people that took orders, you know, and, and because I, mm -hmm. I could see that we could grow really quickly. And if I only brought in sort of low skill or very entry level people, it was going to hold me back. And so I went and I tried to recruit people I had personal relationships with that I knew I'd worked with in the past. I knew what they could do. I knew their talent level. I knew their work ethic. I knew their intelligence. And so I hired our, who's now our CTO, John. He had no experience in Salesforce. And I hired him to a very high paying role to immediately run, you know, very important projects for us in a domain he knew nothing about. And the, the, re the reasoning as to why I hired him is because him and myself and Derek, who was my actual first full-time hire, we all worked, we were in a, a cohort learning program in college where we had to go through two years of doing all our classes together. And so 
And at the end, John was the valedictorian, had like the top grades. Derek was right behind him. I think he was probably second, tied for second in our class. Incredibly talented, super smart. Like I was riding the coattails of these guys when it came to education. And so I knew what they could do. And I knew our dynamic in college worked really well, that we had complementing skill sets. And when we would do group projects, they knew I wanted to do the presentations and the communication and all that stuff. <laughs> John was going to go yeah. in and build an entire code base before you know we were even done with the project. So looking at the way our, our, our skills sort of complemented each other and the dynamic we had, I thought, I want to build a super high-performing team. And so I, this is as sure of a thing in terms of building a high-performing team as I can get because I have past experience. I know the competency. And I'd rather invest in, in that than someone who maybe has the skills, but I'm not sure about the culture fit. I'm not sure about the work ethic. I'm not sure about some of these other things. And so that worked out really well for me. And, and that continued on beyond those first two hires to some other hires, Matt, JP, some people that I had worked with previously that I knew what they could do that I thought, these guys will be extremely talented, capable leaders of this company. And they have been, and it's been fantastic. But I think leaning into the, for me, it was important to lean into the knowns. So I ignored all the advice about don't hire friends or family. I hired both uh, early on. I mostly cared about who could build the culture, who would be able to function at the level I wanted to function at. If we had to teach them stuff, that was fine. And it worked out. So I think that was something that worked really well um, in terms of the parts that that went well. And the stuff that didn't go as well, as we scaled, I also was very focused on how we would build up new talent and hire interns and train them up. That went well, but it was limiting our growth. And this is the big realization I had recently is the things I did that worked when I hired my team that led to explosive growth, we moved away from as I moved into an executive role and those people were leading their teams. And so we leaned much more heavily into interns and building them up. And that had a big cost in terms of how much it slowed down our growth because we're spending so much time building up and training people instead of having people that can train themselves or can make, you know, so Mm -hmm. there is a difference there. And now we're trying to balance that back out where we're developing a much stronger recruiting engine for the right experienced hires to come in and complement our team because we still love those interns are fantastic. Like they are high-performing future leaders, incredible people, but they just are so early in their career that they need more reps. And so we need a better mix of having people that have some more of the experience to go with the people that are extremely talented, but new and mixing that all together in a way where we can grow like we did in the early years of the company where we had both. And in recent years, we've had just interns or a lot of mostly just interns. That's crazy, man. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that when you were talking about this, it's one of those things that when you thought yourself as an entrepreneur, right? You think I'm making all these decisions, and 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 when you start early on, you do you like everything goes through you, but then when you really become an entrepreneur is when you really start making decisions because you can see a little further ahead, and so you see potential in that person, and you say, I could see what this person can do for themselves. Like it's a good fit for them, but it's also a good fit for us. Again, leverage, right? Like, like I could see that. So I think that that's when you really start to say, oh, like I'm an entrepreneur because I, I don't think, I don't think a regular person just like the first thing that comes to their mind is like, mm, this person's skills, personality could be a great fit for this and they could do this and this and this and this and like start building a whole picture of how it could benefit them and their business, right? Like regular people don't think like that. And so I'm, I'm, uh, do you feel like you're there where you, when you start talking to people, your employees, you can already see like how they can grow? I started from the perspective. One of my weaknesses has always been that it's hard for me to see 
ways that either I'm special or people I care about are special. I, I tend to think everyone can do everything. I tend to not think like, I don't look through, at the world through a lens where I'm like, oh, I did this, but no one else could do it. I, I, I lean more towards like, I did this, anyone could do it. Like this is, gotcha. this is very normal. And in reality, that's not quite true. In reality, different people with different strengths are going to excel at different things. And so one of the limiting beliefs in me early was that because I tended to believe like, listen, just give people the opportunity. If they're talented enough, they can do it. There's truth to that, but there are also limits on it. And that balance was hard for me. And I was too far towards just believing in the potential and believing in what could be and having that vision for where we'd be three or four steps down the line. And unfortunately, that meant that sometimes it was really painful or slow getting there. It, whereas I have been less confident or less skilled at times at recognizing the value that someone who's already skilled could bring today, investing in that and, and helping to drive a more immediate result. So that's what I'm trying to balance out now. But I do think that there, there is an interesting paradox as an entrepreneur where a lot of the things that you start that make you successful when you start become the obstacles to your growth when you try to scale. And so yes. that's, that's something I've run into where there's a lot of beliefs that I had that I, people told me were dumb, wouldn't work, et cetera. And I went and I proved they do work and they work really well. And that got us from zero to, you know, on pace for somewhere over 6 million probably this year in revenue. And so we've done really well. But it's becoming clear at this level that there are things, values, beliefs, practices, habits, that while they were really useful at getting us to this level, they will prevent us if we don't change them from getting to the 10 million, the 20 million, the 30 million that we want to be at in the next few years. Do you, do you find it hard to adapt? Like, cause that, that, that means that you have to, every time you reach that point, like, damn, like we have to do this differently now. Like that, like this thing that we were doing this way, like it's not gonna, like it's not working or it's not gonna work. So do you find it hard to like, here's what we're gonna do, like switch fast, especially when it's close to strategy or? I don't find it hard when I, so there's a couple components to this. One is if I understand the problem accurately, I'm very motivated and willing to go solve it. Most of the things that happen in life is people don't spend enough time solving the problem, understanding the problem well enough. They jump to the solution part. And you can put yourself in a lot of, through a lot of pain by jumping to solutions too early and then being the wrong solution because you didn't understand the problem well enough. And one of the hard things about some of these problems is that when they directly correlate to core beliefs or strategies or things that have been so successful, useful, or valuable up to now, is those are where some of your biggest assumption blind spots are going to be because it's the last place you're going to look. If you're like, I have a sales problem. You're going to look at the things that you think are driving sales. You're not going to look at the things that you used to, that, that might've been driving sales, but that you didn't know were driving sales. Like, let's say you had a really high quality product and mostly people were buying because the product was so good. So you start focusing on sales to scale your company. And then all of a sudden it's not selling and you're not, you're wondering why. And you're like, what changed in sales? Well, what might've changed is that your product team isn't delivering as good of a product anymore, right? That there could be a fundamental quality issue that's hurting your growth. Um, or there's another, another product. That came out that <laughs> you never yeah. found out. Yeah. yeah. Whatever, so you, yeah. you you might be very slow to question it being a product issue when the symptoms looks like a sales issue. And historically, customers have loved your product and have raved about the quality of the product. And so you it'll be slower for you to see that maybe you actually got, have to go improve the product issue. So that's just one example, a very sort of generic example. But what I have found is that it's cyclical. And so what happens mm -hmm. is there is a cycle as an entrepreneur where... You understand the problem, 
the pain is very proximate. And so you go work really aggressively to solve that pain. Then the pain goes away. And when the pain goes away, you get to this point where you think, oh, I figured something out. Now I just, now I just want to ride that. I want that to just continue. You know, we, we fixed that thing. Now that, that should just work forever. It's in the past. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then what happens is if you choose to rest on your laurels, you can enjoy the comfort that you've built for yourself, but you're unlikely to grow uh, because the assumptions that got you to that pain-free area were tied to the scale and the size of the company and, and the complexity and everything else involved. So now you're in a new size of company. Now, instead of one person, you fix all your problems. Now you have a team of five and it's going great. You're like, this is amazing. I just want this to go on forever. Well, if you just sit there and coast, those people that are working for you, that are creating all those outcomes that you feel great about are going to eventually want career progression. They're going to have nowhere to go because you're not growing and they're going to leave. And now you're going to spend a lot of time and effort and pain resolving the problem you already solved, which was, oh, I had to build all these systems and get the right people so that I could enjoy that comfort where I was at. And this is what a lot of lifestyle business owners get into is they just enjoy the comfort so much that they yeah. stay there and then eventually stuff falls out from underneath them and they, they're like, oh man, I got to deal with that. And they go put pain and effort back into just sustaining what they've built. To me, this is what we call the growth imperative at my company, which is why do that when you could just cycle again into another growth cycle and go bigger and not deal with all the problems you had before deal with the problems of growing. You know, there's, I've heard the, the, I forget where I read it or heard it, but someone says you only deal with growth pain or death pain. And so I would call that first example, the death pain. And then the second example is the growth pain. Now, when you're going from zero to say five employees and a $1 million a year business and something like that, the pain you have to lean into is one, so proximate to you. And two comes at really just a cost of your time which means it's very easy to be like, okay, I'm going to lean into this pain. The more successful you get, the harder it is to choose to lean back in that pain because now you have something real to lose. I think, I think we're getting near the end here, but uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the podcast. How's that going? Do you like it? Do you enjoy it? Uh, what are some things you like and you don't like? Yeah. So um, I love it. I mean, so I, I committed to the podcast for several reasons, but the, the easiest, like the, the way I do kind of everything is I want my worst case scenario to be progress. So for me, the podcast was one, this is the thing I'm excited about. So I stopped trying to think about, there was a while back in the day where I was like, you know, I should probably build a podcast or an audience around my business or around this. And I just let go of that. And I was like, forget that. I want to build a podcast around something I actually really enjoy talking about that gets me fired up. It'll be like a passion project. And I want it to be a tool for me to meet new people because that's an important part of my current job. In order to do a good job at what I'm doing, I need to be learning from other leaders on the marketplace and exploring the different forms of leverage they're using and looking at the skills I need to be developing. And so how do I go meet those people? Well, the podcast serves as a conduit to both. One, I get to learn. Two, I get to network. And three, if I get no followers, no audience, nothing, Two years from now, I committed to two years. So I believe that when you do anything, you need to set your own sort of commitments. And one of the things I've noticed with the more successful people I interact with is they set bigger commitments to themselves. So I didn't want to start and be like, I'll do five episodes, right? I was like, I'm going to commit to two years, 104 episodes. This podcast will exist for 104 episodes, no matter what. It will exist. Even if it's a total failure, if no one ever wants to listen to it, there will be 104 useless episodes that I got value out of the networking and the learning along the way. With zero, with zero listeners. Yeah. Zero listeners. That'd be fine. Yep. And if I it love happens that. to get listeners, 
then two years from now, I'm going to make a decision about, should I keep growing this into something, right? Because I think it has a really good purpose for the world. And I believe in the sort of mission behind this podcast to help teach people things that they wouldn't be exposed to, get them exposed to ideas that can help them add leverage and accelerate their careers, build businesses, do what the things that are going to create the outcomes they want. And I especially think that's relevant right now with AI. And we could talk about that maybe in a second, but there's such urgency around this that we'll, we'll come back to. Dude. But but that's the thing that like, if that happens, I can't control that. People will either resonate with this message, they'll want to be on a part of this community, or they won't, but I certainly want to. And so I'm gonna go two years in, we're gonna build this out. And I'm grateful that early on, there's been quite a few listeners and, and there's been a lot of people that are really excited about the podcast. And so if it turns into something on its own, that's fantastic. I think in the future, with the addition of AI, we're gonna talk about AI, for example, uh, I was looking at uh, Mr. Beast. You know, have you heard of Mr. Beast? Yep. <laughs> I think everybody has. So this guy, he started doing different languages, right, for yep. his channel. And I don't know if you speak two languages or not, but when you hear something yep. dubbed in a different language, it sucks because yep. it's, it doesn't translate the same way. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the things that I think AI is going to change dramatically. Like you, you can already feed it the way you talk and it will and it will generate your voice with yeah. the same like you just feed it a text and it will generate for you all right it's not great but it's going to get better to the point that you're not going to be able to tell if i'm talking in real time live or not or if it's just a written down piece of text that is being uh passed through ai ge generation or voiceover ai and so i think in the future like right now you're doing this thing in english but it's gonna get translated and published in different languages. And so you're going to have more, and this is just my, my assumption and what I think it's going to get uh, published everywhere in other countries. And it's going to be native to that person. So with AI, and I know that's kind of, I don't know what you, what your thoughts specifically are on that, but do you, first of all, do you think that is going to be possible? And second of all, uh, talk to me about AI. Yeah. So 100% that's going to be possible. I mean, here's, so if we think about, I like to plan for the just short of utopia AI scenarios, because when, when I think about AI at its furthest conclusion, to me, the, there's nothing you can do. So like, in other words, if AI can generate its own voiceovers, if it can take all the knowledge in the world and generate the most creative and, and interesting content, it's going to get to a point where there's nothing I do matters. Like, like that's the logical end point of like, why would this podcast matter? Why would you listen to me when instead you could say, Hey, do a podcast that's better than lessons and leverage with a host. That's more attractive, has a nicer voice. I actually like a voice with this kind of accent. And, uh, I want it to be filmed in Tahiti. Cause I like the background of Tahiti and, uh, you know, I want to watch that instead. So give me that podcast and AI can just generate it in real time and you can consume whatever you want. I mean, short of just like being really attached to wanting it to be another real human, maybe that becomes a big bias of people. I don't know. We'll see. But short of that, AI will just be better at everything. <laughs> I mean, and I really think that's where we're headed. And in that scenario, there's nothing we can do. We are beholden to whatever the powers that be will be in that scenario. So that's a very disempowering future in a lot of ways. And so <laughs> I kind of focus on that future, which I think of as the ultimate potential expression of AI. And instead I try to go a few steps short of that, which is let's say that AI, either because it can't, although I don't think the technical limitations are going to be the problem. Maybe regulatorily people stop it. Maybe on the basis of just sort of 
speciesism. People say human value is higher than machine value, and we get into that whole debate. Uh, maybe there's some for another of, day, for another day, not today. Yeah. So, so, so <laughs> if we end up in some world where humans still have value and are contributing to anything, then what does it look like, and how do I thrive in that scenario? And I think that in that scenario, creating something valuable, creating knowledge assets, creating a media leverage through media an audience of people that are invested in what you have to say and, and the value you're bringing them. And then being able to use AI to do these things like translate it, redub it, potentially even have an avatar of me that does the podcast, right? There's, there's a lot of things that, that you could do long-term that would be really interesting. And all that carries over directly into the consulting side where for my consulting business, I mean, if, you know, what does that look like if, if you can just make avatars of your consultants and they can be in 20 meetings at once and they can be providing a lot Dude, of guidance and, you know, you it, only, it, yeah, everything gets it, very interesting. It, it really does. I mean, when you think about, I mean, just like you were saying about Chad GPT, right? You could say, hey, recall this from this book and put it within my context. Let's say after your 200, after your two years of episodes, right? You upload every single episode and you tell it and you say, hey, in this episode, I've already explained my main core's beliefs and it will probably, be, like you said, become an avatar and, and be able to do, it will be able to give somebody advice, right? Without you even being there. Kind of the same way that you record a video today and somebody pays $5 to watch it, right? Yep. Or what, I mean, that doesn't happen. You don't do that. But what I mean is somebody, yeah, like some people do a course and, you know, they sell it like that, right? So I think in the future, we might do the same where you can have a, like the, the AI access to, uh, you know, you, or you can have the real access, which is a bigger premium, even though AI can create great, great things. Uh, I think it's always going to be tied to humans. Um, and it's going to only enhance I humans. I hope so, because I'm trying to, <laughs> in that scenario, I think we can profit massively, but here's, so here's the last point I want to make on AI. And it's why uh -huh. this podcast matters so much. And it's why people need to take, need to feel an extreme sense of urgency on building leverage now, which is AI is going to do for the world, what the internet did uh, at minimum, at minimum. And so even if you're not, as extreme as me in seeing some pretty nihilistic uh, future potential outcomes, if you at least accept and acknowledge that the power of AI is going to be as substantial as the internet, as transformative as the internet, and you look at, we had the privilege of growing up through when the internet was coming of age. So I remember a time when the internet didn't exist and when I was, landlines were the thing, there was no cell phones and any of that. And if I look at my life at that point and I compare it, just 25 years later, even say, take my life from 2000 to 2020 or yeah, even 98, let's okay. go 98 to 2023. So we get a 25 year span and I compare those two points in time. The world is unrecognizable. And so I'm less, I'm less consumed in the idea of will it replace humans or not? Cause I'm convinced eventually it will, but it's more a matter of, I don't know how long that will take. Could be hundreds of years, could be less than that. But it, along the way, we have to pursue, like we have to go pursue what we can pursue no matter what. So when we look at the internet as a, as a model, what the internet did was it dramatically increased the gap between the haves and the haves not, have nots. And it did so because the internet was one of the most massive forms of leverage that ever came to be. It's, it's a massive leverage technology. And so it, it increased the amount of leverage people could wield, which meant the haves got way more and the have nots got less. And so when you look at the spread in income inequality, 
without getting into politics, just the outcomes, you can believe whatever you want politically about whether that's right, wrong, whether it should be legislated, et cetera. But there's no denying that in coordination with the internet and automation and manufacturing automation and robotics and everything else, that the outputs have dramatically increased while the inputs have greatly decreased. And that has taken the form of then hyper-concentrating wealth at the top. Most of the entrepreneurs I meet start out with labor leverage. They start out with technological leverage. One of those two. They either have built some software and they start with that, and that's their technological leverage, or they have built a small team to go provide a service. Those are like the two most common starting points. So it's not everyone, but there's a lot of entrepreneurs. So they start with those. Then they learn the other one. People that are using teams start adding technology to what they do to try to increase their leverage as they get bigger. The technology people have to build teams to support the technology. So they add labor or technological leverage. And so those are usually the foundational wealth builders. And then once you have wealth, you can deploy that money in financial leverage games. You can't go be an angel That's investor. Or you can't go invest in a big way. You can invest slowly over time and build a nice little nest egg for yourself. But you can't do big leverage games if you have nothing. So understanding that that's, that's the nature of the game, AI is most ready to replace labor leverage and technological leverage in knowledge-based industries. That's where it's going to disrupt the hardest, the fastest, in my opinion. Knowledge-based industries that are work from home, computer work, all that, it is going to disrupt those industries and places where today it's like, oh, it makes sense to hire someone. It will no longer make sense to hire someone. You'll just spin up AI to do it. And places where it makes sense to build software, why would it make sense to build software if eventually you can just tell AI what you want and it'll build the whole software for you in 10 minutes and it's done, it's ready to go. And even then you start looking at, will we even need all the tools we have if instead AI is, is the interface layer? If all we do is interact with AI and it chooses how to structure the systems in the background, I don't even have to buy software anymore because AI is just building me software and storing the data for me and then pulling its own reporting and doing everything. So there's a, a not so distant future. Like I've wondered a lot about, we do a lot of integration work. Will we really do much integration work 20 years from now? I don't think so. Either because AI will be taking care of it for us or because AI will eliminate the need for an integration layer by combining data from all of it into useful front end interface. So just as you think about those possibilities, the ability to build wealth with labor leverage and with technological leverage, now is the time. It might be five years, it might be 25 years, but it's not gonna be our whole lifetime before those become much harder to wield and AI replaces most of those forms. Now, AI in and of itself will become a form of leverage and there will be new opportunities. I'm not trying to discount that, but yeah. it will be massively disruptive. And so if you can build financial leverage now using labor and technological leverage, you learn to play those games, you build more leverage now, then in the AI world, in the AI future that we're all going to live in, you're going to be more equipped to actually then wield financial leverage and not be one of the have-nots that gets buried. So that's kind of why it's so imperative right now, and it's why this podcast is so important timing-wise. It's really remarkable how fast things move and how easy we, how quick we forget. And so it really puts into perspective that speed and building leverage uh, obviously, you don't want to you don't want to create problems for you by not leveraging relationships, but at the same time, you do want to build relationships because that is really going to help you gain the leverage in the technology, in the you know labor uh, space or AI space in the future as well. I think uh, I think that's always going to be a factor. So it's easier now to tap into relationships, right? What are your thoughts? Is it easier now, and it's going to be easier in the future? I think that 
much like what happened with the internet, you have people on both sides that are kind of missing the point. You have people that are like, AI is going to make everything better. And they're not wrong. It's going to make a, so many things so yeah. much better. But it's going to come at a huge cost. And you have people that are like, it's going to replace our jobs. It's going to be horrible. Like, it's, we should be scared of it. And they're not wrong. It, it's going to do that. And so the point is, we want an easy answer. We want some easy answer that's like, oh, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Like, okay, I'm not going to have to worry. And the answer is, we got to stay worried. Like, we have to stay worried because it's that disruptive and it's going to move that fast. But then you have to stay focused on, then what are we doing today? Because right now, as far as speed goes, if you're not actively doing all the things to stay on the cutting edge, you will get left behind and you'll look up one day and go, oh, I don't have a business anymore or I don't have the success I thought I would have. And you'll be on that have not side of the spectrum. As it comes in, it widens that gap. You're going to ride the wave up to the top or you're going to fall to the bottom. Until that date, I have to capitalize on what it means for me in the marketplace economy so that I can even be competitive and I can create any leverage for myself and my family for now. That's really interesting. I, I, I like that comparison. You know, it's like it's going to devalue the, the, the thing that it was, it's solved. <laughs> well, you're going to have to pay to know. So, and that's the thing is like, yeah. what will be very interesting to see is will we start to value more, put more of a premium on real human interaction or not? Will we, you know, it'll be interesting to see how some of the values evolve, some of the political systems evolve, some of the marketplaces evolve. That is going to be a, a, an important, I think we're going to have a full on crisis around that we have to solve in order to come out the other side better off. And if we fail, then it just is a really bleak scenario. So yeah. just got to be do, ready for it and not fail. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do see a little, a little bit of similarity with what's happening now, because when you think about how people nowadays put a heavy, investment in building their brand, right? Like you, me, uh, just people just now you find it valuable in, in having the leader of the company become sort of a media company in itself because yeah. why? Because you need to, it's not just about vision anymore. It's about authority. It's about uh, differentiating your thought process really and, and highlighting that. And so I think in the future, there's going to be more of that with AI I don't, but again, it's going to devalue whatever we value today for sure. There'll be more so, before there's less, but then at some yeah. point it will get devalued. That's, there's going to be a gold rush. And if you've yep. got leverage and you're building leverage, then you, you ride the gold rush. And then we get to whatever that future state is where the world looks very different. That's hard to anticipate. And so that's why right now you should listen to this podcast. You should develop <laughs> to help you build leverage. You should get as much leverage as you can and go build what you can right now because 20 years from now, it may look entirely different and you may look back and go, man, I missed out on that gold rush. And so I think if, if you're, if, you know, if you're working in a company that has no vision strategy plan for how they're incorporating AI, how they're building for that future, I'd be moving on uh, to find somewhere that is, or to be building my own company that is because there's just so many legacy processes that specifically in the knowledge-based industries. I, I, one of the things I think is very likely to happen in the short term, it really could only be accelerated by legislation from my estimation, although there's some major corporations that could do it too. But I think robotics is lagging. The hardware is lagging behind the software and, and, and software is, I mean, if you look at just chat GPT, what it's learned to do since it came out, the strides it's taken, 
it's on an ever increasing pace to learn and get smarter and more effective and more efficient. And so that thing is a rocket ship that's taking off uh, just large language models in general. And then if you look at uh, hardware, it is still, it's growing very quickly and everything, but it's not going to keep pace with software in the short term, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. What that means is I think I we see, have I see that too. Yeah. where then today knowledge workers are the premium. And I think we could actually see an inversion where trade workers and physical laborers and people that are doing the things in the physical world that you can't just automate, that's going to be at a premium for a period of time uh, until robotics can come in and replace it. And I think then you're going to, it's good. You're going to see a mirrored um, evolution. Software is going to happen first and the knowledge industries are going to get disrupted. And then you're going to see a, a shadow of that happen in the physical world with robotics. That's what I suspect. That's just, I mean, just guessing at this point, but that's what the way I would see it playing out is that over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, some sort of period of years, software is going, you know, AI is going to disrupt in unfathomable ways, knowledge-based industries, and then it's going to convert to the physical side. I know, I know we have to end, but uh, I think you're, I, I agree with that. I think, uh, so the, uh, I think the CEO of ChatGPT, uh, he, sh uh, he did a podcast episode with Joe Rogan. He would talk, he was talking about that. He thought originally that ChatGPT is going to replace blue collar jobs, like analyzing mm -hmm. data, making decisions, stuff like that. But it turns out that the first disruption is going to be in creative work, like generating, mm -hmm. creating stuff. And it's interesting because not even the leaders of the industry are, can really pinpoint exactly what's going to happen, right? It, it goes to show that the more you know, the better leverage you'll have to use it for, for your advantage and, and for those around you. For sure. Um, so thank you so much, man, for your time. Uh, it's been an hour and change, almost two hours now. Uh, I, I wonder how much of this you, you can keep, but, um, I'm, I'm very... sure we might, we, might actually, we might make this a two-parter and, and separate it into some, uh, into some different things here. So either yeah. way, I really appreciate you coming on, Daniel, being willing to interview me. Uh, it's been fun. So, uh, we'll, uh, we'll give this one out. And, uh, before we go, anything that you want to plug, uh, for your business, uh, any, anywhere people can find you. Well, they can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, just my name, Daniel Borba. Or go to our website, sparkportal.com, if you have a software company. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming Thank on. You. Talk to you soon, brother. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solved.cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.